Hello and welcome to the Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast, where we address innovation and the law from three angles, people, technology and business. Today, we're here at the Law, Innovation and Vulnerability Conference at the Faculty of Law at the University of Copenhagen, together with Associate Professor David Restrepo Amarillas, coming from HEC Paris Business School Smart Law Hub and author of Algorithmic Decision Systems in the Handbook of Law and Algorithms. Welcome, David. Thank you very much, Leonard. It's a very big pleasure to be here with you today. It is shared. It is shared. So to get straight on this topic, um, because we've been having today lots of conversation at the Law Innovation and Vulnerability Conference about AI and the regulation of algorithms and so on. And there is a concept that you have been working a lot recently, which is the algorithmic society. So can you tell us what is the Algorithmic Society? Great. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question to start this podcast. Um, well, you know, we are, we live in a society governed increasingly by a whole set of machines and data and software, uh, way more than we were before. But we know that actually algorithms took us to the moon, right? Um, and now they are not only taking us to the moon, but actually they are just giving us a can of Coke, uh, in a vending machine. They are actually doing um, credit uh, assessment uh, and credit lending. Uh, they are also flying planes, opening doors. Uh, they are sort of playing a fundamental role in organizing society to a certain extent. Uh, and actually, we don't get to realize how much all this set of inst instructions embedded in computer software are just surrounding us all the time. So basically, the algorithmic society is in a society in where, where uh, basically the functioning of fundamental institutions, uh, our political institutions, our economic institutions, our infrastructure, are run by sets of algorithms running in data centers, in servers in the world, and uh, making our life different from before and different in the sense that those algorithms are, to a certain extent, invisible to our eyes. And I guess there's also a, a question of control also over these algorithms, right? Because when it's human beings that make all those decisions that you were talking about until now, we have set ways of auditing the decisions they've made and questioning those people. Why did you make that decision? What did you base it on? Uh, so I guess there's a, there's a problem. We, we develop the technology because we want to lose control. We want to put the machines in control because that's work we don't have to do. But then like, how do we make sure the systems are still making the right choices, right? Right, yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's of course very important. Uh, the, the question of how do we regulate an algorithmic society um, has sort of different layers, right? Um, an algorithmic society is a society where risks are distributed in a different way um, and are different in nature, right? Uh, when you have, uh, if we just take a classic example, when you go to a bank and you have a cashier helping you out and just doing manual paperwork to give you out your money and that person is unavailable, you can go to the next cashier. 
But actually, if the system is down, no one can withdraw the money. So we have a whole set of different risks that become more systemic, mm. uh, spread out. Uh, and that's this important consequence that we have yeah. to regulate. And yep. at the same time, you have other types of risks that are disappearing, like risks that would come from human hands doing those same uh, those same questions, like, for example, corruption and embezzlement. That maybe becomes a bit more difficult. So we lower that risk too, right? It's not just a question of new risks appearing. It's also we're gaining less risk on some other things. Right. You're raising a great point uh, that it's, I would say, uh, a sort of a cultural um, variations um, in the relevance of algorithmic systems across our societies. In societies, for instance, with high corruption rates, uh, governments or companies actually prefer to have algorithms in control and lower uh, sort of human oversight. Whereas in societies where you have, let's say, more democratic controls and trust of, of citizens over those institutions, the objective is how do we implement human oversight over those algorithms. So I, I think that's indeed a very important point. And just to get to two other things you mentioned uh, about regulation in the algorithmic society, because of the nature of uh, those systems, there is one fundamental change, one that we cannot wait for ex post control. Uh, if you imagine a content ID, for instance, used by YouTube, right, uh, taking down videos when they don't comply with copyright law, and uh, you just wait until someone complains, you might be taking down a lot of videos that were actually legally uploaded. So one of the big challenges of algorithmic regulation is ex-ante regulation. Um, and that comes to a certain extent to the scalability of regulation. How do we make regulation scalable, in a certain way, algorithmic regulation scalable for a algorithmic society. Because if you just control algorithms at the second order level, meaning ex post, you just expose society to great risks during a long period of time. So this takes us to what some people call um, regulation by design, sort of including constraints, behavioral constraints of algorithms by design rather than controlling the outputs of those algorithms. Yeah, because controlling ex post, right? So it, controlling after the action has been performed, that's what we do with human beings, right. isn't it? Absolutely. And for instance, you know, you're, uh, you're a doctor and you make a bad diagnosis and you haven't kept up with new knowledge in your field mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, someone gets hurt, one of your patient gets hurt because of that decision, then there's a host of consequences that can come and sanction that behavior. But of course, it doesn't really make sense to punish an algorithm. So in that sense, I think that what you're, what you're telling me, uh, another way to look at it is that that's the only way we can do it. The only way we can actually enforce that control over the decision is by making sure it has happened before the system is even put in place. But how do you control uh, uh, that uh, a robot is able to make the right diagnosis decisions in the first place? Well, yeah, I mean, I, that's, I would love to have the answer for that. A robot doctor or a robot car, you know, it can be anything. Right. I, I would love to have the answer for that. But I, I guess we have right now some 
uh, experience in different areas, for instance, in the financial sector, uh, sort of what we call stress testing. Um, uh, now, um, that's been widely used uh, to test algorithms that are deployed in financial markets. So this is sort of creating scenarios where you sort of test the algorithm before it is actually connected to a specific marketplace. Um, so um, one of the possibilities is subjecting uh, some of those algorithms to exant tests uh, and defining, of course, very critical thresholds that would allow to sort of the next step. But it actually creates an issue, of course, here is that um, if you have a human decision maker uh, sort of uh, having an error in judgment, you might just have that for the specific case in which that human is deciding. When you believe that you have incorporated a principle, let's say, of privacy by designing an algorithm or human dignity, which is very controversial, but um, and it is not operating well, it is also scaling the damage because it is doing it in a systematic way yeah, to yeah. everyone that is concerned by that decision. So, of course... Um, and it's only after X amount of... Uh, uh, repeated uh, error happens that some consequences eventually happen whereas when humans make a mistake they're usually responsible straight after said mistake right absolutely yeah and there is it is very difficult to take things to this to the, where they were before so that's absolutely a consequence yeah. and I think that there's also something to be said about the concept of human-centric AI and that, that comes back to the notion you were saying about strength testing um, algorithms ex ante, so before they're fielded, before they're, they're sent off. Um, I mean, like, testing procedures is something, testing requirements is something pretty uh, normal when we think about uh, physical safety. Yeah. When, you know, you can't, you can't put a car, a new car on the market if you're, you know, Volvo or whatever other company, if you haven't extensively tested that your system, that your car isn't going to break down in a certain number of scenario over a certain number of kilometers. So this, this, this idea that systems need to be thoroughly tested for safety and now fundamental rights issues, that's, that's not something that's new, but what's new is, uh, is the nature of the technology and uh, the, the relation that the technology has to uh, what we can do with law. Yeah. Um, because to a certain extent, there's, there's limits to what law can achieve. And we've seen that very well, for example, on the internet. It's still incredibly difficult to age zone online content. There's still, a, you know, it's been going on for like maybe, what, 30 years. It's incredibly difficult to prevent minors from accessing uh, online pornographic content because the only way you can screen those people out is essentially by having you know a little box that asks you can you check in check in if you're over 18 so there's there's a lot of limits to what law can do what regulation can do but when we're trying to to push forward the idea that uh, AI needs to be centered around human values it needs to respect human dignity um, non-discrimination and the principles you mentioned so how what is the, the what is the, the the limits and what are the abilities of regulation in achieving that objective yeah uh, that's a great question uh, Leonard and uh, and I think the first thing we have to be aware of is that uh, AI systems generally optimize 
uh, have an objective uh, that to be optimized that might not be human related. For instance, the supply of energy. Um, uh, so the question is, how do you ensure that an algorithm controlling for the supply of energy or the pricing of energy, let's say, uh, is human centric? And how can regulation actually play out there? Um, so, um, so once we understand that uh, AI systems might not have objectives that are related uh, that directly, I would say, uh, to human values, um, then the question is, how do we introduce human values and how we test those algorithms for human values? And that's where regulation is coming in. It's kicking in right now through standardization, through the AI Act in the European Union. But there are limits to that regulation. Um, there are limits to that regulation because, as you were saying, although I consider myself what how William Twining says, um, a legal nationalist. So I believe in the strength of law to have an impact on society. Not everyone believes that. Um, but how can actually we ensure that law has an impact and regulation have an has an impact in the way AI systems are designed so they incorporate human values? And I think the main point to understand nowadays is that this will come through operationalization of technical standardization. Mm. So we're going to have a set of standards that will define, and we heard this today in the event, um, we heard this today in the event, um, that um, there are technical standards to define, for instance, what is a valid consent uh, in medical procedures, you know, a legal concept. So a lot of these operationalization of human rights and human values will go through standardization. So I think we have to keep an eye on that uh, uh, as people interested in, in, in law and values. And, and the, limits of, um, the limits of regulation today is in our ability to transform human values and human rights into technical standards and to test for uh, those uh, values and standards uh, in a way that makes sense and actually promotes uh, human rights and human values. Do I understand correctly that standards are norms that are made by the industry? Um, they get together and they say, you know, to achieve that specific safety objective, you need your machine to be this and that way. Is that is that how standards work? That, that's correct. So, so standards have a fundamental role in operationalizing, uh, let's say, the road to market for different products. And they are mostly led by industry. But standards play a fundamental role in setting the concrete rules, actually, that in many way, ways operationalize legislation mm. and regulation. Mm. So that's why I think that standards today, especially in, in many sectors, but especially in the AI industry, should be free. Mm. Big issue, but if standards are key to maintain and to ensure human rights are implemented in AI systems, those yeah. standards should be free to the industry because we know today that a lot of organizations cannot pay yeah. to the, that documentation and therefore an ISO access to one ISO document that's like what 2,000 euros yeah, I absolutely. think so yeah. that's what 10 uh, 13,000 Danish crowns uh, for our local audience it's it, it is quite a price right uh, well thank you so much uh, for joining us today on this podcast and this conversation together with Professor David Restrepo Amariles and we talked about a lot of cool stuff, human-centric AI, 
and the algorithmic society and the limits of law. And maybe one final, final question for you, David, is, okay, so what's, you know, if in the end, the, the only real rules that are applied in technology, the only real norms that are applied in technology are those standards. Is there, is there a place for us lawyers in this, in this world? Can't we just get replaced by engineers um, essentially operationalizing the law instead of us? <laughs> Great question, Leonard. And, and actually, we are, as lawyers, uh, the specialist of norms. Uh, and that's our domain. That's our business. Um, and uh, actually, throughout history, lawyers have been, uh, there have been competitors to lawyers, and there have been competitors to other peoples in other domains. For instance, for accountants, there were, uh, the, um, uh, uh, there were two different types of accountants in the, in the, in the Middle Ages. Uh, there were the abacists, and then there were the algorists, those using the abacus and those using uh, Arab numbers. And they were competitors, and lawyers have had competitors before. Theologists have been competitors. Managers have been competitors. Economists have been competitors in regulating society. So it's not the first time we have competitors. We've been there. Yeah, exactly. We've been there. So just we have to remember that whatever regulates society is the business of lawyers. And therefore, I mean, the call is rather to get involved in this uh, standardization uh, and to understand how we can ensure that key values of the law, like due process or the rule of law, are actually embedded in the new way, I think, regulation will work in the algorithmic society to end up with the concept we started. Thank you, Professor David Restrepo Amarillas from HEC Paris Business School. This was Leonard van Rompuy, postdoc at KU uh, Faculty of Law. Uh, thank you for listening. And this was it. This is the Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast. Follow us, join us. We'll have lots more cool content about law, legal tech, law and technology. Thank you. This is Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast at the Faculty of Law, University of Copenhagen, brought to you by the Highest Foundation. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and your favorite podcast platform.